right, 1 Samuel 14. Let me remind you of where we were. Saul, King Saul, in hopes of gaining the favor of the Lord, lost it. He brought to the Lord a sacrifice that was forbidden. And so his kingdom, his kingship was taken from him and taken from his line that his sons would never sit on the throne because of his rebellion. But in the goodness of God, this promise also comes that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, a man who will lead Israel the way that they are meant to be led by a loving shepherd to their loving God. Now we come to chapter 14, and you know that promise is given. And what it should do in the way that we read and in the way that we hear is that we should kind of have our eyes open and our ears open looking for this man who God has sought out who is to be after his own heart. And so keep your eyes open for him as we continue to go through 1 Samuel. Keep your ears listening to see where is this one going to come, this one whose heart is after the Lord. So with that in mind, let's read together, starting at chapter 14, verse 1. It says, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sine. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. 
So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all of the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would open your word to us. Open us to your word. Speak, for we're listening. And we not only want to hear from you, we need to hear from you. This is the word you've given to us that, that builds us up, that strengthens us that matures us, that cements in us our faith because faith comes from hearing. So, Lord, may it be that we hear your word today. We believe it and we obey it. God, I ask for your power to move among us. I ask for your power to move in our church, in your church, in this city. Lord, we ask that you would do mighty things today. Call us to your purposes. If there are any here who are still apart from Christ, dead in their trespasses and their sins, do the powerful work of giving them life, of making them alive in Jesus Christ, of giving them eyes to hear, ears, uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that believes, and to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Lord, we're asking you to do what we can't do. We don't need good stories. We don't need good illustrations or jokes. We need you speaking through your word. So, Lord, teach us this morning. Work among us that which we cannot do, because where else are we going to go? You alone have the word of life. And it's in that word made flesh by his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray and ask these things. Amen. There's one coming whose heart is after the Lord. That right there is the kind of man and woman for whom God seeks. And then we come to the very next chapter, and Jonathan becomes a focal point. This, this king, this son of the king, the son of Saul. And what we're going to see, what's, again, is this contrasting and comparing that we've seen throughout 1 uh, throughout Samuel. Contrasting and comparing, showing us the difference between, between men, between what God is doing and what man is seeking. This time, that contrast and comparison is going to be between Saul and his son, Jonathan. So on one side, you have Jonathan. And Jonathan looks at his armor bearer one day, and he says, come on, let's go over to the garrison of the Philistines. Now, let's remember where we were in the last chapter. Jonathan attacked a garrison of the Philistines. He attacked an armory. 
He attacked a, a building, a place where soldiers of the Philistines had come and set up shop, and he defeated it. And so in response to that, the Philistines muster their army, and there were soldiers, we're told, as vast as the sand on the shore. Now, when the Philistines come against Israel, they just keep coming and coming and coming. You couldn't even begin to number how many soldiers they had. So Israel blows the trumpet, and they seek to unite together themselves so that they can go to battle. And yet when they come together, they clearly don't like their chances in this battle. They don't seem to follow or trust their king. And so the majority look across the field at the Philistines. They decide this is not a battle they can win, so they just disperse. They run away. They, they hide wherever they can find to hide in holes and in tombs and in cisterns and in, in, in graves, essentially. Some actually just run over to the territory of the Philistines and join them. They want to be on the winning side, so they just leave. Well, Saul, the king, looks around and he sees that his army is just dropping like flies, as in they are leaving him. They're dispersing, they're hiding, they're running, they're doing everything you don't want your army to do. And so in fear, he goes to the Lord in disobedience. That in fear, he doesn't turn to the Lord and say, look, I trust you, God, we need your salvation. Instead, he does that which he's not supposed to do. We saw that the Philistines, they came up against Israel, and it's almost this picture like these hundreds of thousands of soldiers look across at the 1,600 men, these soldiers of Israel that are following Saul, just 1,600 compared to sand on the seashore. They look across. You get the sign, this picture that they just smirk, and they just start looting Israel that they essentially treat Israel like a CVS in a blue city. They just, they know nobody's going to stop them. They know that they can go in and do whatever they want to do, and they just start robbing and pillaging and wreaking havoc, knowing that nothing will happen. You get the picture that things are actually worse off now that Saul is king than before he became king, that this right here is the new normal for them. It gets worse. The Philistines have actually taken all the blacksmiths and all the weapons out of Israel to where they can't even form new weapons, and we're told that no one in Israel had a weapon, that the armies coming together and the only two people that had a sword or a spear in their hand was Saul the king and Jonathan his son. Hear that. No one in Israel had a sword or a spear except Saul and Jonathan. And now we have Jonathan, one of those two men with a weapon, and he looks at his armor bearer and he says, let's go over to the garrison. Let's go over to the Philistine army. He doesn't tell his dad, presumably because his dad would tell him no. It's true, isn't it? I don't think this is a good idea. That's Jonathan. Well, on the other hand, what's Saul doing? Saul is staying on the outskirts of the camp. He's at Gibeah under the pomegranate tree. He's got 600 men following him, including a guy named Ahijah, who's the son of Ahitub, who's the brother of Ichabod, the son of Phinehas, the grandson of Eli. Now, if you've been with us for our whole study of Samuel, you remember those guys. And this guy, Ahijah, is wearing the ephod. 
Now that right there is the clothing of the priest. So you've got Saul out here under the pomegranate tree, and he's got this guy named Ahijah, and he's, Ahijah is acting as the priest of Saul. Now let the wheels turn on this. Who is this guy? He's the nephew of Ichabod, the son that was born to the wife of Phinehas right before she died. You remember what the name Ichabod means? The glory has departed. The glory is gone. So you have this priest named Ahijah who is in the line of Eli whose priesthood was taken from him. Do you remember that? Eli, your sons will no longer serve as priests. The priestly line is no longer in your family. It's done. That when God looks at the line of Eli, there will be no priests that come from it. Sound familiar? You've got Saul, this king, who in the last chapter was just illegitimized. He brings this sacrifice and he loses his kingship. None of his sons will sit on the throne. He's out here. He's doing his thing and he's hired a priest to come before him who himself is not a priest, who's in a line that does not have the glory of God in it. That's Saul. Now back to Jonathan. He and his armor bearer work their way over to the Philistine garrison. They have to climb all these rocky crags to get there. And we're told that there's a little more of this conversation, that they are going over to these uncircumcised, these pagan Philistines, and they want to see if the Lord will work for them. And Jonathan makes the claim, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, not by many or by few. Why does he say that? Because there's only two of them. And they're going up against thousands. And Jonathan looks at the armor bearer and says, don't worry. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He could save by many, or he could save by few, or he could save by two. Or he could save by one forever, right? That's what the church claims, that God can save by one forever. One sacrifice, one who goes before and does what nobody else could or would do. He saves by one. That's the picture we get here. And so Jonathan says, look, nothing can stop the Lord. Nothing can hinder him from saving. Let's go see what he's going to do. And so Jonathan says, here's what we'll do. We're going to go up there. We're going to climb up there. We're going to show ourselves to the Philistines and, and let's see what they say. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we might should get out of there. That means the Lord has not done this, that this is not what the Lord is doing. But if they say, come up to us, then we're going to go because the Lord has given them into our hands. And that's the sign. And so the armor bearer says this to Jonathan, I'm with you, heart and soul. I'm with you. Let's go. I'll follow you. Do whatever's in your heart to do. Look at this young man who's going to follow Jonathan. You think he's following him because he likes the plan? Because it's a solid plan? Because the numbers are in their favor? Put it on Facebook later. 
He's following Jonathan because he sees courage. Because he sees a man who talks what he believes and lives in accordance with what he knows to be true. He looks at Jonathan and he says, look, that guy's following the Lord. That he's not all talk. He's not just something that says something. When he says it, he means it. And you know he means it because he shows his faith in boldness. That he's moving forward in faith in the Lord. And so the armor bearer says to him, wherever you go, I'm going with you. Let's do this. I love this chapter. It's so good. And so you get the picture that they're climbing up these crags and they finally get to the top and the Philistines are looking out and I love this response too. They say, ah, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes from where they've hidden themselves. Like they're, they're mocking them with this. They look at the Hebrews essentially like prairie dogs, probably focusing on the dogs part. There's no fear. They don't care. They look at them like this is about to be sport. Oh, look, the men who were in hiding are showing themselves. And so they yell out to them, hey, come up to us. We have a thing to show you. I don't know what that was. Come over here. We'll teach you something. Now, remember the plan. The Philistines don't know the plan. But Jonathan and his armor bearer do. If they say, come up to us, then we know the Lord has given them into our hands. So we're going to go. And I imagine that the, the Philistines, they yell out, hey, come over here. We got something to show you. And Jonathan and his armor bearer just smirk and look to each other and start laughing. Look, rule for you guys that want to fight. If there's 10 of you and you say to two guys something like that and they laugh, get away. <laughs> it's not worth it. Something's off. Your calculations, have, they're not there. That's what they do. They smirk. They look at each other and they say, well, let's go. And they work their way over to them. They climb up. Jonathan goes in front and he wounds them. Then the armor bearer comes behind and he kills them. You know what they say about teamwork? It's making the dream work. What he thought would happen is happening. After their first strike in a matter of just a few moments, 20 Philistine soldiers lay dead before them. And it's bad enough and it's severe enough that the entire camp of the Philistines, thousands and thousands, fall into panic and confusion and chaos, so much so that the Bible uh, authors say the earth quaked. The earth shook while this was happening. That's Jonathan. Now go back to Saul. Israel sees that there's an uproar in the camp of the Philistines, so they go to tell King Saul about it, and they say, okay, look, count, let's see who's missing, and they find out that Saul's own son, Jonathan, and his armor bearer have left, and it would rightly conclude that, so that, that Jonathan and his armor bearer are the ones over there fighting and bringing the chaos. So what does Saul do? 
Does that right there inspire courage and boldness and leadership to go into this battle where the Lord is clearly at work? No. Instead, he tells his priest to hide you. Bring the ark of God here. Bring me the ark. And while they're doing this, the chaos in the camp of the Philistines is growing and growing. It's getting worse. And so Saul says, hey, withdraw your hand from the ark. We must go to battle. And so you imagine Saul grabs his sword and all the other men grab their gardening tools or whatever it is they're going to war with because they didn't have anything. And finally, they're going to battle. But it doesn't matter, does it? Like, it doesn't matter that they have no weapons. And it doesn't matter that there were just two Hebrews who have gone out to fight. Because one thing we need to know from this passage is that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. That's the point. Not few soldiers. That can't hinder him. Not even few weapons. That can't hinder them. So God causes this uproar in the camp of the Philistines. And it's chaos and confusion so badly that all the swords that were in the Philistine camp, they, they get drawn from their sheath, and you get the picture that they're just swinging and hacking away to where they start killing each other. So you got an army with no weapons at all, and they say, look, nothing's going to hinder the Lord from saving and the Lord brings this chaos and confusion upon the enemies of his people to where they start using their swords against each other. And when the Hebrews who had gone over to the camp of the Philistines, they see this, they turn on those people and they start fighting with Israel. You got any friends that are, that are Alabama fans, Laker fans, and Yankee fans? That's these guys. They just want to be on the winning side. Now, when swords and blood and death are involved, I get it. But they just want to be on the winning side. So they see, hey, wait a minute, the, the tide, no pun intended, the tides have turned again. And so they start fighting against the Philistines too, fighting for Israel. And then you get the picture that all those who were hidden in the caves, they came out to fight also. But by this point, the Philistines who haven't been killed by their own swords run away, and Israel chases them out. And we read this, the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved. Does anything about this battle make any sense? Nothing about this should have been a victory. One army was armed to the teeth and massive, and one army essentially had no one fighting and no ability with which to fight. They didn't even have weapons. And yet, when the Lord chooses to save, nothing hinders him. Hear that again. Nothing hinders the Lord from saving. That he saves whom he wants, when he wants that when he chooses to save you, nothing will stop him. Nothing will stop him. That he doesn't look at you and say, well, that person doesn't bring much to the table. Not many talents, not many gifts, not much money, not much personality. 
not very attractive, hasn't accomplished much. His faith isn't what I want it to be. He seems to have struggles and struggled for a long time. Not a great catch, honestly. That's not how the Lord works, that he saves anyone who comes to him. In fact, the way we come to him is not to say, hey, look what all I've done. Look what all I've brought. Look at all who I am. It's to look and say, all I bring to you is my sin. That's it. Will you fix it? Will you forgive it? Will you cover it? Will you redeem me? I have nothing to give. The Lord says, that's what it looks like. So if you're there and you're thinking, well, this whole God thing sounds great, but he would never take me because I'm, what, I have nothing to give. You're so close. That's who he is. That's why we sing things amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He's gracious, compassionate, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and nothing hinders him from saving. You can come to him in faith, trusting in him, and he will save you. It's not a suggestion. It's not a might. It's a promise by a faithful, sovereign God. Look, if you look at your life and all you see is battles, especially the kind of battles that are too big, they don't make sense, there's no way you can win, crack your knuckles, open your eyes and watch. Because if you're a child of God, that's the circumstances he loves to work in and nothing can hinder the Lord from saving you. It's what he does. If he started the process in you, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna finish it. He says so, he promises it and he will do it. Let this story encourage you. Remember another old song we sing, God must save and God alone. Maybe we haven't sang that in too long. You don't, you, nobody knew that one. That's God. So make no mistake, who's the hero of this story? God. But I want us to take time to look at these two men too, because I think that every Christian in this room is one of them. Every one of us is one of these men if you are in Christ. On one side, you have Jonathan. I love this guy. Think about him. Jonathan goes out on this day and he says, let's see what the Lord will do. His eyes are open to see what God is doing around him. And he says, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to see what God is doing. And I'm just going to go see how I fit into that. He looks at his hand and he says, look, I have a sword. I'm one of the few guys in Israel with a sword. How can I use this sword for the glory of God? And he looks across and he sees the Philistines and he says, you know what? My sword and those uncircumcised Philistines, I think those would go well together. And he does it. Let's go and see what the Lord will do. And then the Lord does extraordinary things through this ordinary man. That this is the picture of what it looks like for a man or a woman to have their heart after the Lord. This is what it looks like, what God does in and through someone who is sold out and trusting Him, who goes out each and every day and says, what will my God do today? That's the picture of Jonathan. 
And then there's Saul. What does Saul do? He's at the camp. He's hanging out under the pomegranate tree. He's a disgraced king with a disgraced priest. And the mission and power of God are happening all around him. He doesn't even see it. What does he say? Bring me the ark. A part of me wants to say, we tried that before, Saul. Have you not read your own book? It didn't work. It didn't work in chapter 4. It's not going to work this time. That what you see in Saul is a, a man who has the power of God working all around him. And Saul, his response to it is just to be religious. Just to do religious things and miss the mission that is right before him. Brothers and sisters, I told you that you would be one of them. Which one are you? Are you like Saul, where you really don't do anything? You're not active. You're not serving. You're not involved. I mean, sure, you're here for worship, but you just sit, you get, and then you go. You're doing the religious things, you're performing your rituals, but you're completely unaware that there's no power. There's no power because your heart's not turned to the sovereign God. You're just doing the thing. Or are you like Jonathan? Your eyes are actually open to what God is doing. You're looking for his power and his purpose and his mission all around you. You're seeing yourself and the life and the giftings that he's given you. And you're saying, God, show me where I fit. That I'm going to start walking and trusting that you will go before me and you will lead my way. Listen, churches are full of Saul's. We need Jonathan. This battle was the mission that God had given to Israel. These were the circumstances in which they found themselves. And the question for us becomes, what might God do here? This was them. This is us. What are our circumstances? Here we are in this town, in this time. What might God do? Look at your life. Who has God made you to be? How has he gifted you? How has he called you? Where you live, where you worship, where you work, it's not an accident that God has placed you here. So what is your role in the mission? Look, what about us as a church? What's our mission? Well, King Jesus gave us that. We are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. So what do we do? We gather together, we open up the word of God, and we seek to grow in our understanding of who he is, of who he's made us to be, of the mission that is at work all around us. We do it through pursuing one another so that we can know how to love each other as Christ calls us to. Look, if, if all you do is Sunday morning worship, hear this in love, you're missing out. But we have Sunday school classes, small groups, men and women's studies, Wednesday evening gatherings, classes for our children and our youth, and they're all designed to show us and them the greatness of God and to teach us his word. That's what it looks like to make disciples. You know, I had to have an emergency meeting the other day, essentially. Emergency may be stretching the term a little bit. 
But we had to get a few people together and say, listen, we got a problem that even though we have many people that leave after the service and don't attend Sunday school, we have a space issue. We have a building issue that we're running out of room on one hand and still many people don't come. And you look at it and you say, well, that's wonderful. If you're going to have a problem, that's the problem to have. Yet what the Lord is doing here requires more servants and more space. And if we just started building buildings without building servants, then we're going to find ourselves at a place that doesn't make sense either. We need both. God's blessing. We're seeking to make disciples, and God is blessing it. And we're seeking to make disciples who, Lord willing, are going out of here with the mission of making more disciples. Look, God created us and gifted us how he wanted us, and then he placed us where he wanted. And we're surrounded by people who are lonely, who are hurt, who are broken. They're without God and without hope in the world. They're in the darkness of a fallen world, and yet we know Jesus, the light of the world the Son of God who came for sinners. God forbid we sit up on this hill and we forget our mission. God forbid we are those disciples who don't obey everything he commanded because the Great Commission just kind of falls to the side. I don't want to be Saul. I want to be Jonathan. I want to see God's power here because we're seeking him and God's power there because we're sharing him. I want to wake up and say, what will you do today, God? My eyes are open and my heart is willing. This is the mission of God for us. Are you on it? Is your heart after his? Do you recognize and remember God's goodness and faithfulness to you and his power at work for you? Do you go forth in the strength he provides? You want to know the truth? God is moving all around us, First Baptist. He's showing his power and he wants to work in you and through you. Don't just sit there. Join.